Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm John Marzalek, a host for the podcast Queer Voices of the South, a LGBTQ plus studies channel podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking to Jershon Avales about his book, Black Queer Freedom, Spaces of Injury and Paths of Desire, published by University of Illinois Press. Whether engaged in same-sex desire or gender nonconformity, Black queer individuals live with being perceived as a threat while simultaneously being subjected to the threat of physical, psychological, and socioeconomic injury. Attending to and challenging threats has become a defining element in queer Black artists working through the Black diaspora. Jurishan Avales analyzes the work of diasporic artists who denied government protections have used art to create spaces for justice. He first focuses on how the state seeks to inhibit the movement of Black queer bodies through public spaces, whether on the street or across borders. From there, he pivots to institutional spaces, specifically prisons and hospitals, and the ways such places seek to expose queer bodies in order to control them. Throughout, he reveals how desire and art open routes to Black queer freedom when policy, the law, racism, and homophobia threaten physical safety, civil rights, and social mobility. Jershan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here today. I'm excited to have you here, too. Looking forward to our conversation. So um, I wonder if you could begin by telling our listeners about yourself. Okay, I'm an associate professor in the English department at the University of Maryland, College Park. And I teach courses uh, primarily on African-American literature and culture, as well as on courses on gender and sexuality. So those kind of those are my areas of focus. And the work I do, the essays I write and books I write are really on those areas, thinking about how uh, African-Americans understand their sense of self and how queer artists and queer writers and black queer artists uh, make sense of themselves in the world. Mm-hmm. And what led you to what led you to write this book? I really wrote this book for two reasons, both of which have to do with <laughs> uh, just my desire to see uh, something in print. But the first reason was to try to create a resource for people who wanted to learn more about the experiences of Black sexual minorities in, in the United States and throughout the world, just kind of to learn more and also to read about them in ways that aren't just about uh, what you might read in a newspaper, which could be, you know, uh, outlandish or crazy, but learn about how they uh, create lives for themselves. And the other reason was to try to think f- through for myself how exactly how people create lives in the context of the kinds of constraints such as racism and homophobia. Like we know that these are things that make people's lives difficult. And I never want to lose sight of that, but I also want to understand how people find ways to create meaning and pleasure, even in the context of those kinds of pressures. And the book focuses on that, that, that idea, thinking through those 
those ways of making making meaning and making life. Yeah, and you and I were talking before before we hit record for this podcast about this being the Queer Voices of the South podcast, and you know I told you. I was interested in interviewing you because I knew you talked about the artist Big Frida from New Orleans, where I used to live. Um, I guess one thing I didn't tell you was that um, when I interviewed couples from my book about um, same-sex couples in Mississippi, it really struck me about the difference, the differences in um, Black queer people's experiences versus the white queer people's experiences. So it really made me want to talk to you about, you know, what you had to say also. So I wondered if you could, you know, tell us about how you you see your book and yourself fitting into this queer voices of the south i really appreciate that question because the south plays this kind of really big role in the project but it's kind of a like in terms of its foundation as opposed to being necessarily about it although i do be, i do begin the book with big frida and thinking about the significance of bounce music to uh, American culture and African American culture, and particularly what it might mean to think about not just Big Frida's music, but also uh, Big Frida's autobiography, like how she talks about her own life and experiences. And that's how I begin the book. And, and from that from that south that location in the south, thinking about what uh, gender nonconformity and being a sexual minority means in uh, in Louisiana. But in many ways, because I myself grew up in Arkansas. I spent most of my life there before I left for graduate school. There's a way that I think I take a kind of a, there's a kind of a sensibility I think I have based on where I grew up. That is, I see the Southern that probably yeah. shapes everything I write and do. <laughs> in yeah, ways, yeah. I think it's just kind of uh, part of it. That's uh, and so that kind of that sensibility, that perspective, but also because of where I grew up. And I mean, in the, even thinking about the civil rights movement in a place like Arkansas and the long history of a segregation that really characterized much of the South, that, that, that not only the sensibility, but also that actual history in many ways feeds what I'm thinking about throughout the project, particularly in terms of U.S. history. So I think there's a way that the South is kind of omnipresent in the book, even I'm not talking about the South, because, because of uh, culture and history, but also because of just who I am and how I grew up. That really came through to me, too, as I was reading your book. So that, um, I'm glad I was on the same page, so to speak, with you on that um, as I was reading it myself. Um before we really dive into your book, I, I wanted to ask you about your cover. I think it's a beautiful cover, and I wondered if you could, since we're on a podcast, describe it to people who haven't seen it yet. You know, Tell us about the art and what you hope to re- represent with it. Oh, I would love to talk about the, the cover, in which I also am in love with. And I uh, want to start, before I even describe it, uh, thanking the artist, David Antonio Cruz, who gave me permission to... Uh, have it on my cover. I was very pleased. And I'll describe it and I'll talk about kind of how it came to be the cover of this book. So it's, first of all, and I hope you uh, do check it out if you're able to kind of look it up and see the cover. It is uh, vividly colorful with really bright reds and blues and greens and has these two uh, black femme figures kind of lounging back on uh, like a chaise or a couch uh, both of whom are looking out at the the viewer. One is kind of sitting up. One is literally like lying back, 
head back uh, nearly on the ground, just in a position, these positions of absolutely, absolute relaxation and enjoyment and pleasure. And I think almost defiantly like looking out at the viewer. And I love all of that. I love the sense of pleasure. I love the defiance. And I love what I think of as a kind of freedom they seem to have in their comfort with each other on the couch. So it's beautiful. And the color, it's just, it's incredible. And, oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, you go. Well, I was going to say that there, there, it made me want to be in the, in the setting with them as I looked at the picture. I it, know. It <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it reminded me, and I'm not sure if this is fair or not, you can tell me, but it reminded me of times when I've been to gay bars such as New Orleans or other places, and there were drag queens, especially black drag queens, who had this power and this freedom about them that just really made me want to be in their presence. No, absolutely. I think the part of the reason I love the cover is I think it captures a kind of uh, sense of peace, but also enticement that I, that I really want the book to, to, to play into or have a think about, because even though the book, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more later, the book is very much about histories of oppression, but the book is also about pleasure and I see so much kind of pleasure and sense of self-satisfaction in these figures that I thought it was perfect. Oh, and yeah, I, it's want, I did want to tell you, I have, it's a, a kind of a, a short, funny story how this yeah. came to be the cover because I was actually, I live in DC and I went to the national portrait gallery to see, actually to see the, uh, the Obama portraits. So I was there oh, yeah. to see them and I just, you know, I was there. So I looked around at everything else they had there and they had another show up, an exhibit. And I was walking through the exhibit and I just saw this painting. It was, it's huge. And I just turned and it was just there and it's bigger than life. So these huge, beautiful figures are staring at me. And I was like, that, that could be the cover. I just got really excited about it. So it was really, was, it was absolute happenstance that I saw this this painting in DC and I contacted my press and got they got things going but it, it worked out but it really it wasn't I wasn't didn't have this image in mind I didn't have this artist in mind but I really just happened to turn a corner and saw it and fell in love with it wow and it's so exciting that this artist agreed to let you use his art for the cover of your book it's wonderful yes, yes it's wonderful yeah, and I was thinking. Um, I think that our list, our listeners will be able to see a cover of your, of your book because it'll be included with the description of um, this podcast. So that'll be nice. Oh, for fantastic! Yeah, to be able to see cover. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wondered if you could, because because you and I talked about it. For those listeners who have never heard of Big Frida, I wondered if you could talk about her and you know why you included her in your book in that first chapter, sure introduction chapter. So if you don't know, uh, Big Frida is a a contemporary bounce music artists, you can think of bounce as kind of like the Southern version of hip hop that really emphasizes certain kinds of beats and dancing and pleasure in the club scene, and particularly uh, certain kinds of dances, uh, like twerking. Yeah. And so, and uh, actually, Big Freedom has had a TV show recently, it has this book that's come out, and it's really become, um, I won't quite say mainstream, but very much a part of our consciousness about where hip hop and club music can go in terms of its impact and popularity. And uh, and actually starting opening the book with Big Frida was really in part just about kind of my sharing my appreciation for the work she does and her music. But also, I also wanted to show that the conversation that I wanted to kind of have in this book 
is about literature, but it's not just about literature. It's about all kinds of artists. And that's really what the book is about, a range of different artists, some of whom are visual artists, as I end the book with visual art, but also performing artists. And there, I think all of these queer artists across uh, genre, across place, across time, are having similar kinds of conversations. And that's kind of what I want to tap into. Yeah, and there's there's a place in your book where you say that um, you say that the artists you write of in your book, quote, express desire and claim a freedom within restriction. Yes. That's Could you talk about that a little bit? Oh, sure. This goes back a little bit to what I was saying before, that I really think that it's a, it's important to me to always make clear how a queer artist and queer activists want everyone to understand the specific kinds of oppressions they face every day. And they I think that's a lot of the artwork I examine makes very documents, works real hard to document those oppressions and so that people don't take them lightly or think that they're they don't actually amount to much. And so they that, that's like the they uh they all point out how queer people often exist within a world of restriction. They're all things that you can't do. And they're, they're, we can think about that in, a, in very kind of everyday ways, thinking back to, for example, I lived in North Carolina for a while. And if yeah. you remember uh, the, the quote-unquote bathroom bill that was there that yes, tried to yes. yeah, restrict where people couldn't and couldn't go to the bathroom. Like that is, that is nothing is much more kind of elemental and everyday than being able to access a like, public service like a restroom, right? Like there were restrictions placed on people's lives because if they uh, seem to be uh, non-conforming in some way, if they're sexual minority. And so that's, so I, that is important for, again, for me to document the book and show how artists document it. However, that's only half of the picture that they're, mm-hmm. The, all of the artists I talk about want us to understand those restrictions, but they don't want restriction to be the only word on Black queer life. They also want us to understand that even within the kind of the realm of what can be ex- intensive and really strict restrictions, people find ways to laugh, to enjoy yeah. themselves to have pleasure, to find love. They, all that still happens. And it, but it happens within restriction. I think it's that there's this kind of balancing act of making sure that we understand those kind of parameters and boundaries put on life, but never allowing those parameters to define all of who one is. And I think that's the part of the contribution of my book is trying to help us understand that kind of back and forth that's always there. And that, but ultimately if there's a final word, the final word is that that, that pleasure is will be had, even if it's pleasure that's bounded or momentary. Which is just takes and create and just um, amazing strength when I think of these artists. I, and I think of the two people on the cover of the book, just amazing strength to be able to have that attitude when they face so much discrimination and, um, you know, oftentimes physical violence. That's right. Yeah. Uh, this this kind of leads me into wanting you to talk about um you talk about the concept of spatial justice. And I thought that was so interesting. Um it's something I hadn't thought about in the way you you said it before. Oh, sure, I'm happy to talk about it. So, in, in fact, the first a full chapter of the book looks to this idea that I call spatial justice and basically what I'm talking about there is 
the and this goes back to the the point I made before about histories of segregation. The way that and also the the bathroom bill. The way that some uh, populations never have full access to the social world for whatever reason, whether that's because of their race, their sexual identity, their gender identity, they are either barred from certain spaces they have now or have been historically, or society makes it hard for them to access certain space. And for me, spatial justice is about trying to ensure that everyone has full access to that space and that we also understand that all the spaces that we live in, all the spaces out there in the world are haunted by these histories that like access. For example, we can, and this is particularly important for people who are living in the South, thinking about yeah. um, uh, all the lands that were once plantations that aren't anymore, like that that history of that, mm. that land. In fact, uh, lots of, there are several uh prisons that have been plantations and then now are that are now aren't plantations anymore that's but right that's thinking right. about um that those kinds of histories still kind of if they don't define they still kind of lurk in that that place and because and that's part of what the chapter is about is how history kind of lurks in places like ha- spaces have meanings but importantly the bigger point really is more about helping us understand that people don't have equal access to space and then what would it look like if we all had uh, free access to move throughout the public world? Yeah, I remember in the introduction you talking about um, several different stories. One was of um, some black kids that were um, just kind of sitting around having a good time on somebody's steps or near a store and you know the way they're treated. Um, I think they involved some gunshots, yeah, somebody being killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And that was uh, that's uh, from in in New York, right before York, the, right. Uh, yeah. the Harlem kind of upheaval in the 1960s. Um, riots, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's, yeah, that's exactly, and that, that was kind of one example I was giving historically thinking about like those young uh, people were really just kind of moving, walking up the street, hang out on a stoop and they were deemed, that was inappropriate and that led to altercation and then violence and then a death because they couldn't just be on the stoop. And so that there's something about that, this idea that certain bodies don't belong in spaces. And that's not, I mean, that's not, that's one example. Of course, we all know a lot of them, but there, it's quite often that becomes the case that certain bodies aren't, seem, aren't deemed to be uh, either, not even that they don't belong, but that they actually seem to defile the space. There's a way that uh, particularly uh, racial minority and sexual minorities just don't belong in certain spaces. Yeah. You know, and, and it, you talk about, um, about at one point you talk about heterosexual intimacy compared with um, queer intimacy and in that right. if somebody, you know, and it, it really reminded me of, you know, something I was so interested in talking to um, my interviewees about was how they felt being able to show public displays of affection, like holding hands. Um, and, and how, as you said, it's almost like people act like they're defiling, defiling the space if they are not, demonstrating heterosexual intimacy yeah i mean that's the point i make that when we if we're outside and you see kind of um a cisgender man and woman heterosexual couple kiss that's like people are usually like oh that's so sweet that's really exciting people love it or if they even notice it at all it's kind of like part of the backdrop of being in the world but to see a same-sex couple kiss that causes often different kinds of reactions, right? There's a way that that seems to be inappropriate for public space. Like, what if someone's watching? What if a child sees? There's a way that that kind of intimacy is, it doesn't belong, only belongs in private space, if anywhere at all, whereas 
heterosexual intimacy is it's what we, we see it all the time. It's on every channel, uh, it's that's everywhere right. that's right. in the social world. And again, it's almost as if it it's what's supposed to happen. Like when you see it, it's like, oh, that's beautiful. Like when you're walking through a park, like that's part of the tapestry of the park itself, like seeing heterosexual intimacy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, one of the things that I, I wrote about in a blog one time was about the um, the kiss cam at, at um, basketball games, you know, and mm-hmm. it is, if, if some, if, there were a couple of cases where two um, gay men kissed and you would have thought that <laughs> the whole ceiling was going to fall down on the place That's or something. Right. Yeah. So I mean, there's a, there's yeah. this, I mean, I, I will, I won't deny in 2021 it's, there's been a lot of change in the past 10, 20 and 30 years, but there's still, I would argue the sense that um, same sex desire makes people uncomfortable. Yeah, and that's and right. that's I mean, right. that's really to say the least, like that is probably an understatement. And I think that is what people that goes back to this point about people's everyday experience, like what it means that your everyday experience gets kind of questioned or even ridiculed. And that's the point that I want people to not lose sight of. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, how, how do the artists that you cover in your book push back on that? How do they? You talked about expressing desire and claiming a freedom within restriction. Mm-hmm. I think uh, in c- several different ways. I'm trying to think of a, a good example to speak to your point. Actually, the one that comes to mind most immediately is the chapter I have on prison. And I'm thinking about the memoir I write about about a, an author's experience uh, being in a Delaware prison. And I, I'll just I'll be brief and say that I mean. Part of the point, like, I, there are few places we can imagine being as restrictive as a prison. Like, that seems that's to right. be, that's fair, yeah. or a jail. We imagine that that space is about restriction. And and particularly when we're talking about, uh, like, a, a queer male, it probably is not just about restriction, but probably about the anxiety of what it means to be in this space uh, this uh, homosocial space when we know that we all know and think about prisons often as being at spaces about kind of sexual violence and sexual abuse. And the author of the memoir, who is uh, a gay man who also is a kind of femme leaning, we think would be particularly afraid. And he is anxious about the, about that situation. And my point in my, in my chapter about the memoir is that you might expect then for the whole memoir to be about this kind of rape anxiety and just fear mm. and all the kind of stuff. But the, instead, the author chooses to focus instead throughout the memoir on all the crushes he has on all the guys in the prison. Like in other words, it becomes, I mean, and, and, and it's, I think it's absolutely, this is his experience, but I think it's also this purposeful choice to not allow a particular narrative about a gay man in prison to be his story, right? He wants a story to be about his desire, his pleasure, his excitement, even at the same time that it does document how it's a frightening space and there are abuses there. But he actually wants his story to be about how he understood his place there. And his. so the desire becomes the focus as opposed to like violence being the focus. And that's kind of what I try to show throughout the book that even as these authors... And artists show us the realities of violence. They don't want the violence necessarily to be their story. They want to think beyond it or think think about what else one can do. So, I mean, whether or not you believe this memoir, he ha- is his experience was all about 
his uh, experience of a pleasure and just basically really just having like crush after crush after crush. Like the yeah. point being, that's the story he wants you to know. That's how, that's the record he wants of his experience. I think that's what matters. Yeah, you know, and I, I teach mental health counseling to students, and so that that part just really fascinates me because we talk about reframing people being able being able to reframe That's their right. negative experiences, and it's just it's such an amazing thing that that these um, artists you talk about are able to do that. And I think that I, I really like your use of the word reframe. And I think that's so much of what I'm actually, I think I'm talking about throughout the book is they're reframing both like kind of, again, acknowledging the kinds of constraints that are there, but trying to reframe things for, for the public record, but also for our understanding of what it means to be a black queer person. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. And that, that, that leads me to a question I, I was thinking about, you know, you, um, you talk about, and I don't remember where, but, you know, using an intersexual, intersectional approach. Um, and you talk about that all queer people can face discrimination and injury and violence, but that um, you say, let's see, if we're, you say it's not one dimensional, that you have to take into account somebody being, you have to take into account their gender, their race, and so on. And so I wonder if you could talk more about um talk more about that the intersectionality yeah i really appreciate this question because it's really it's important to me to not portray black queer people in kind of in just like one way like this is or like saying this is the mm-hmm. experience right and so part of what i try to do is to point out that there are even though even in the context of something like racism or homophobia being constant, it doesn't mean they get experienced the same way by everyone at, uh, to the same degree. I think that's, and that's the point I'm trying to make uh, and thinking through your point, your question about intersectionality and just trying to understand that those differences of degrees can actually matter. Going back to the, the prison example in the memoir, the author talks about how his friend who's a bit more kind of uh, effeminate actually experiences much more kind of violence and negative attention than he does because he is more effeminate, uh, femme presenting. Right. So I think, think, and that's the kind of thing that because there's so much criticism of any effeminate male in our, in our society, like that have being someone who's more kind of femme leaning, more effeminate might mean that you face more, of the kinds of danger. And that's, that's exactly how it plays out. And then it's kind of one small example, but I think trying to understand at the same time to understand the reality of these constants of discrimination, but also taking seriously the idea that everyone doesn't experience them the same way. Some people have more privilege than others. That's right. That's right. And some people just don't, uh, aren't impacted the same way. Like being of a different class status might protect you from some things, but it doesn't, definitely doesn't, from everything. And so I try to take that seriously, often thinking about things like, especially in this book, uh, gender presentation and how often someone's gender presentation if it's non-conventional makes them especially susceptible to some of these pressures than other people, even though everyone in the book might be, face all of these pressures. But again, some might face them more if you were, if you don't, if you're really non-conventional and non-conforming. Oh yeah, we we talk about we talk about in my field and I guess other fields too. Somebody being a double or triple minority, and it, like you said, the, the 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 lack of privilege somebody has when they have all these these um, 
parts of themselves that people are judging and um, saying aren't as good. Yeah, and I think that that I think it's just an important point that we important that we don't ever just kind of understand there being kind of one, even if we're talking about uh, black or people, there being kind of one experience, and especially that's important to me. Yeah, I'm yeah. talking about uh, artists and people who live not only in the U.S. but also in other countries that I don't all I don't also flatten out that experience of being one when there are all kinds of cultural factors that lead to differences as well. Cultural and historical factors. Like if you're living in South Africa, South Africa versus living in Jamaica or Canada or the U S like those are going to each different, each place will inflect your experience of racism or homophobia differently. Yeah. That's a good segue to ask you about um, chapter two, where you focus on immigration. If you want to oh, talk sure. about that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. yeah. So that chapter is, is about, uh, primarily Jamaican immigrants who moved to Canada. So I'm interested in in that kind of movement. And it focuses on a female labor migrants primarily. So mm-hmm. I was interested in thinking about immigration, but I also I didn't want to think about immigration only in terms of moving to like the UK. I was interested in people who move to the uh, to the mainland Americas, but also people who move under constraint and most often labor migrants are moving under the constraint of like needing to find work and having that experience. And so I focus the first part of the chapter is on this author named Makeda Silvera, who does a really fascinating ethnography of labor migrants, domestic workers in the early 1980s, all of whom are from the Caribbean. And she follows that up by writing a collection of short stories that I, my argument is, is it's kind of rooted in the ethnography she does that explores, uh, kind of domestic workers, but also just kind of uh, uh, Caribbean women and particularly uh, lesbian women and their experiences migrate, migrating. Interesting. Yeah. And yet it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, you were talking about the black queer men in prison who were, who, who were being judged or um, are more likely to face injury if they are more feminine, but then you have the lesbian women who are more likely to face that if they're acting too masculine or pre- are presented in a more masculine Absolutely. way. Absolutely. And also just the – another layer of that is like if sometimes people who are more out about their sexuality or the gender identity then face more kinds of backlash, which comes up in one of the short stories I talk about, that mm-hmm. one person who's more out and there's an anxiety about – what being out means, like it might cost someone their job if they're perceived as being gay or if they're out of being gay versus people who they can be out without that risk of losing a job. So there's a different layers of that uh, vulnerability. I'll put it that way. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. You just, well, that's a different story. <laughs> Move on to something else. But um I was curious about you telling the listeners, of course I know because I read the book, but you telling the listeners how you organized the book and you had two parts in different chapters. Yes, yeah, I, I do have uh, two parts. The first part of the book focuses on kind of movement through the world, through public space. So I have a chapter that's on uh, moving in streets that's pr- especially about police violence and inter- interacting with the police and what that looks like. And then the chapter on immigration, like really moving across borders. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, well, I was going to say the part about interacting with the police is so um, is is so current right now yeah, with what's happening yeah. in our country. No, even as I was when I was writing the book, that it it just felt very timely and important. And I think it unfortunately will continue to be 
uh, as we try to figure out what policing means in this country. And that the, the chapter is primarily about interactions with the police from the 60s and 70s. But it, it, it's amazing. I think when you read the chapter, it it just feels like it could be written about today. Like it really is. It's unfortunate that these situations feel the same in terms of police violence leading to activism uh, around the uh, loss and death and abuse. And that it really is, I think it resonates a lot with uh, Black Lives Matter and what's happening now. Yes. And I was thinking about all that when I was writing this chapter that's really, again, about the past, but the, that that chapter, which is about the need, spatial justice and the, the need to be able to move freely through space is exactly what people are talking about now, activists talking about now, the, the right to move through space freely. I love the concept of spatial justice. Um, uh, you know, I, I, it, like I said, it, I think readers will find that really fascinating, and it really makes you think about just space in a different way and people's experiences in a different way. You know, I, you're, I think your book is really apropos to what people are talking about in terms of the um, in terms of the mob riots against the Capitol. You know, a, a lot of a lot of um, I've read a lot of opinion pieces and newspapers and you know on the news about how would police have reacted differently if those had been black black lives matters protesters no absolutely and i think that and i'm i'm read a lot of those too and i'm glad to i'm glad people are having that conversation mm-hmm. I and mean, one because it's important to to recognize what you can call a shift in policy or approach that i think suggests how again different bodies get read differently in space yeah, right i think yeah. that's that's important but also because just having us think about what it means to move through the space of the like the capital which represents this country and certain individuals seem to have a different kind of right of access to that space no matter what they're doing it's i mean it's simultaneously shocking and not shocking at all to me like the, what they're doing was it's incredible, but also like, but of, I felt like, of course, they feel like they have that right. That's not surprising at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, and um, being down in the South in Mississippi, you know, there there were huge debates over the past year or so about um, finally changing the state flag that had a Confederate symbol on it. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it makes me think of, in terms of spatial justice, all the people um, in the state who saw that symbol, and every time they walked by a building and had it on it how could you not feel oppressed? You know, how could you not feel that you weren't part of the society that the government didn't care about you when you see the symbol? Oh, absolutely. I've always, and again, Kevin, growing up in Arkansas and seeing Confederate flags pretty regularly, especially, especially on people's cars. Uh, so I'm being used to that. I've always been struck by people's, and I get it though, people's investment in the flag. I, I know that flag. I know it, they say it's about heritage, but what always find, I find fascinating is to think about that flag and think about yourself as a patriot when the Confederate flag was about seceding, it seems like it, it, it was about kind of being unpatriotic. There's a way that, and I know they're not literally, they're, they're more invested in, in the history of it and what it means to, I would say, white identity than about like historical fact. But there's something that seems yeah, very unpatriotic yeah. to me about uh, embracing a flag that is actually about kind of pulling away from the nation. But again, that's not, I actually, I think that it's really more about the a foundation and a kind of what I would say call kind of a white identity and feeling and feeling a need to kind of establish one, a relation to that past. And so I understand that, but it seems that always, but it wraps itself up in the language of patriotism and rights that I find laughable personally. 
No, I do too. And I, it you know makes me think of what you discuss about, again, this, this concept of space and spatial justice, because there's one group who's wanting to control that space and not let other people be able That's to. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I like the point you made too. That often, when when you when you have when this flag is on a building or standing in front of a building, it does suggest that that building represents that space, and then you might not feel welcome in that space. Which actually is, I think, part of what it does rhetorically is to say that this space is for certain people and certain ideas and not others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, coming back coming back to the artists in your book, you know, you know, can you talk about more, you know? about maybe give some examples of how artists take back the space at least in their lives oh that's really that's a great question how they take back the space in their lives i think actually one way i will one artist i'll talk about doing who does that is the artist i end with in the book Mm -hmm. with the book uh the visual artist zaneli muholi who's a south african uh portrait artist visual artist and all of her her and you and her work is actually very, very popular. It's in museums and it, it travels around the world a lot. But a lot of, most of her work are photographs or videos of uh, black lesbian women, black South African women who are lesbians. And and we actually, it's just kind of showing them often staring at the camera, looking at the camera or just showing us their lives. So they're incredibly intimate. But what's interesting is uh, she, we only ever, because her, the people, her subjects, the people in the in the photographs, are really her collaborators. They they decide together what's going to be shown, what's not going to be shown, how they're going to look, what they're going to be wearing. So it is this kind of collaborative space. And I think part of what she's doing, and then I hope this gets to your actual question. Uh, part of what I think she's doing in that that ongoing project and all these photographs isn't just kind of showing us. Uh, black lesbian women but also they're all kind of invitations for us to look with their permission right they get we they so we are in some ways to me i see i read it as like they're incredibly empowering meaning they have the power to decide what's being shown and they are giving us permission to see them right and so that to me feels like a a different way of thinking about this as opposed to thinking about these are individuals because of their identities who are going to be denied everything and subject to all kinds of abuse. They are kind of consenting. They're consenting to allow us to see something. So there's something about their power that is accrued through the series. Yeah. That that, actually answer your question. I feel like I got on a, (laughs) I got going. I'm not sure I got to your actual question. No, I think, I think you did. I, I, I was, I was, it was, it's, it's fascinating to me. I think, I just keep coming for me. I, for some reason, I, I'm really resonating with the strength of these artists and the other pe- and, and that you describe in your book, and being able to do that and being able to create this art that reveals things about themselves. Um, That's right. Also, okay. Yeah. If I can interrupt you for a second, the, what I did yeah, say, speaking back at Maholi, because this is the piece I didn't uh, really elaborate, is that I mean, her work is also incredibly personal because she also photographs herself. And so she allows, she also allows us to see very intimate parts of her life and kind of shows us that. So I think there's something about thinking about the everyday experience so that, and it's often like, it can be the most quotidian thing that we're getting to see, but we're getting to see her life within the larger context of the realities of some of things like violence that many of her subjects experience, but that's not, the violence isn't the subject of the photographs. Oftentimes, like the, the subject is really their lives. Like there's one photograph I talk about in the in the book about uh, a couple just like 
walking holding hands and that's all walking away holding hands and like thinking about that that capturing that kind of quotidian moment which of course could be loaded because that could that could actually cause someone to react in a negative way but 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 that being said getting to see them in this kind of everyday moment that other otherwise we probably would have no right to see or ability to see there's something really important about that kind of documentation of the everyday yeah yeah um Another another area that you you focus on you, in in the second part of the book where you're talking about institutions is hospitals and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that give people a taste of what they they'll find in that chapter. Yeah, so the second half of the book I, I'm focused on institutions mm-hmm. and there are two the first which I've talked about already a bit prisons and the second is hospitals and I was really interested in thinking about hospitals in part because there's just a long history of of medical abuse of racial minorities. And I mean, there's a thinking about something like Harry Washington's medical apartheid that really tracks all the ways in which, especially in the U S that uh, people of African descent have basically suffered or been used by uh, doctors, medical establishment to advance medicine. Like there's just a long history of that. Like the Tuskegee Institute. Yeah, yeah exactly. Tuskegee thinking back to the South. Uh, so I, I really wanted to think more, think about though, those kinds of histories, but also understand how queer artists kind of thought about those kinds of histories or understood their kind of a, a vexed relationship to medical institutions. And so one of the, uh, the one arts to talk about is from South Africa, actually. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in the history. I opened the chapter by looking about the history of health institutions, mental institutions in South Africa uh, through looking at this novel that's called, oh, oh The Quiet Violence of Dreams by mm-hmm. uh, Salo Dweaker. And so the novel is really, that has a character who spends significant amount of time in mental hospital. And I argue that that defines the rest of his life. And the art, the author also spent time in a mental hospital. So it's kind of, in some ways, it's, it's a novel, it's fiction, but it's in some ways infused by his own experiences. And I, I, I read the book as kind of a, a critique of uh, mental hospitals, or of the, the establishment and the means of treatment of mental hospital patients in part. So thinking about that and how what is seen as a treatment or helpful could actually be a means of abuse and and particularly in terms of, you know, as I talk about in the chapter, in terms of the longer histories of mental health care in South Africa. So the, large, the chapter is, is trying to help us understand, again, the complicated relationship that not just uh, Black people, but Black queer people have to just kind of doctors in general. And uh, the often distrust people have because of histories of abuse. Sure. And and for um, queer people, any queer people, when they've heard about um, people being sent to these so-called conversion um, therapy places, Absolutely. you know, where they're trying to yeah, change someone's sexual orientation. You know, I, it's, another way I'm just thinking as we're talking that your book is really just pertinent to what's happening in current events is – is the lack of the lack of trust by many Black people, um, from what I've read, about the um, about the vaccine for COVID nineteen? Oh, yeah, absolutely, and uh, to me, it makes <laughs> it makes perfect it makes sense. sense. It makes it perfect. Does. Yeah. It does. I mean, yeah. I have relatives who are very very suspicious about it, and I, and and I I think some people are very quick to dismiss 
those kinds of suspicions. And I mean, I personally think people should take it if they have access to it. However, I, th- I do think it is a little unfair to qu- dismiss that distrust because that distrust is based off of literally decades. That's right. You know, That's centuries right. of factual abuse of black people by the medical establishment. Like it just, it is actual right. fact mm-hmm. and people and the, what it's, and it's kind of, I say fact, it's kind of his, by fact, I mean, historically accepted now for a long time, people dismiss those claims of abuse as fake or kind of just folklore or gossip and people, cause people have always known about it. Uh, uh, in terms of families and cultures, but there wasn't a lot of evidence to kind of back it up. But now we actually have people, because of great historians, we have the documentation to back up what were just kind of family stories or tales. So people have this distrust and it's not, it's not something that can just, you know, is going to go away with just some new No, it's, it's, it has a lot to do with the historical mistreatment of a population. And, and because out of necessity, the vaccine has come along relatively quickly, and people just don't know. They don't know what is going to happen. They're worried about if they're going to be some kind of weird reaction. So all the all the reasons we would normally be afraid of any yeah, about yeah. any new medication, they're just there. And it, but I, I just don't want people to be dismissed as being like, oh, they're kind of being anti medicine or they're being uh, regressive in some ways. As a, there's a, I think a a smarter conversation would be to kind of think about how to address these actual legitimate concerns in a way. I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To address it, the concern and talk about the value of taking it, but also with, in, but also contextualize the kind of conversation that respects people's hesitations. Yeah, sure. It's self-protection. It, it makes yeah. perfect sense. So, you know, you have to, it's the same, it's the same reason why, um, any, you know, anyone who's been mistreated by the police is going to, be a little, yeah. Um, yeah. It's gonna be a little hyper vigilant when they see a policeman going by. It makes Absolutely. perfect sense. I remember yeah. this is. I'm sorry, this is not really on topic, but I was no, when nice. I was in graduate school. I was, uh, what's it called when you put on a jury? I was, um, oh, um, a jurist. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well, that's. I, guess, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah that's no. the question. I, jury duty. I got jury duty. Jury duty. Okay. One yeah. of the and it was a, a a murder case and that involved a police officer and one of the questions the judge asked me was if I had any like misgivings about police officers. And I had to say, yes, I didn't. I actually said it was probably was not appropriate. I said, I'm, I'm a black man living in Philadelphia. How could I not have misgivings? And he didn't, totally he was very, he was, did not like hearing that. And I was not put on that. <laughs> but I actually, I wasn't saying it to get out of anything. I just didn't, I was being honest. Like, how could I not have, how could you not? Yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. I don't, I don't have the privilege of not being, of being able to trust the police without in any situation. I just don't have that privilege. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great response, actually. So hopefully it opened his eyes a little bit anyway. No, I, I think know. I just made him upset. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's funny. I love it. Oh, uh, um, I wanted to ask you, it, I don't know if you thought about this, but what are you hoping that readers will take from your book? I think what I, more so than anything else, I, I hope the readers take from the book the value of art to social activism. I think that's yeah. the piece that I really think is important because artists what they're often doing is kind of taking what's happening in the world and like working through it and playing with it in their work. But more than that, I actually think that art is vital to social change. I think, so it's not, I mean, we have to, I think rallies are important and we have to be lobbying politicians, all that matters. But I also think art is a part of the path forward. And I think we, we turn to art 
in many ways to to escape reality, but we don't just use art in that way. We learn from art. Art, I really believe, points our way forward and often helps us mm. to imagine things that we have not yet been able to imagine. And whether that's kind of socially, personally, or politically, and I think that's part of art's function. And I just want I don't want people to ever lose sight of the fact that art is vital to our society. Yeah, and I, and I love how you're calling attention to artists from um, from different populations than people normally see, from you know the queer queer black population. I think it's wonderful, and of course, different areas of the world too. Yeah. Who do who do you think who do you think would really um, what type of people or who do you think would really um, enjoy reading this book? <laughs> That's. <laughs> Of course, oh, you want to say, of course you want to say everyone, right? Everyone. Like everyone. To, that's um, what I say about mine. Yeah, everyone read my book. Yeah. You know, I, I think, um, you know, because I'm an academic and I really, I think I wrote the book. I, I think the primary audience for the book is probably uh, students, uh, uh, undergrad students, graduate students, but also I think people, other academics like me, people, anyone or, so I think that's probably the immediate audience, but I think anyone interested in African-American studies or sexuality studies, and particularly the history of those uh, those fields, thinking about Black history and mm-hmm. queer history, I think would would find the book interesting and find useful. I think anyone could pick it up and read it. Uh, you know, it has this could be a little academic-y <laughs> in terms of it, the book, but I actually I, I think that the book has relevance and mm-hmm. resonance to lots of different people and can find it interesting. And so, what I always when when one of my friends who is an academic ask me like about the book when they say like okay what should i read if i don't read the whole thing i actually always tell them just read the conclusion the conclusion is short it's like eight pages and i do think it kind of gets to the heart of the book when i'm talking about and i think it can make you want to go back and read more so i always want people to the conclusion where i'm talking about zuneli maholi's uh visual art i think i tell people to read that and then see if that makes you want to read other chapters but any the other good thing about the book because i have these specific chapters like on street violence, on immigration, on prison, the hospitals. Actually, in some ways, you could just pick a topic and read that chapter and like find some value in it. So if you know you're interested in in like prisons, you could read the prison chapter, and that could be enough for you. Yeah. Well, I thought your re- I thought your introduction was excellent because it really made me want to read more. And oh, you really, good. You really, you really, I thought you summarized. You know, you summarized what you were going to talk about, but you inter- you introduced some of those concepts. And you know, I'm I'm obviously not an English major, um, but I found so much that I could that resonated with me in my field. And as you and I discovered today, there's so many ways that the topics you cover really apply to what's happening in our world right now. Well, John, that is high praise. Thank you for saying that. Oh, of course. No, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And um, with that note, um, it looks like we're coming at, to the end of our time. So I, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It's just been a pleasure talking to you, Jershon. Thank you. I've had such a good time, and I really loved kind of thinking through the book with you. It's a pleasure on my side oh, as well. I'm glad. I'm glad. And I just encourage everyone who's listening to go out and get a copy of um, Jershon's book, Black Queer Freedom. You, you won't be sorry that you did. Oh, can I add one more thing in? I'm sorry. To of course you can. No, if, please go ahead. I just want to say, if anyone wants to to buy the book from the press, Illinois is the press, there is a code I can give you to get a 30% discount. So I want to oh, please do. That. Yeah. And I'll put that in the, I'll put that in the, can I put that in the summary? Yes. Of the podcast? Yeah, please also, do. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's a F20UIP. 
Okay. And I'll, I'll make sure I put that in the written summary also. That's great. Yeah. So That's definitely great. if you buy, I mean, it's on Amazon, you get it on Amazon, but if you buy it from the press, that code will get you a 30% discount. So I definitely want people to <laughs> save money if they want to. That's exactly right. Um, don't you type it here in the chat for me. So I'll definitely make sure I put that up for everybody. And, um, and finally, please join us again next time for Queer Voices of the South on the New Books Network.